Hello, and welcome to Return to Regalia, an Underland Chronicles reread podcast. I'm Una. And I'm Nate. Today, we'll be covering chapters 10 and 11 of The Curse of the Warmbloods, in which Gregor visits Naviv's lab and analyzes the prophecy of blood. Last week, I said that we would also get through part of chapter 12, but I took my notes for these chapters and it became apparent that I would have a lot to say about them. (laughs) So without further ado, let's get right into part two, the jungle. Let's go. Where we left off, Gregor had just discovered a bug bite on his mom's hand. Chapter 10 starts with everyone going still and silent except Boots, who says, you need pink, meaning the pink lotion they put on bug bites. Grace reiterates that she needs to go home, but Vicus says they can't let her now. Solovet agrees, pointing out that if the plague reached the Overland, it would wreak havoc there as well. Of course, we know that the Overlanders are notoriously smart about following protocols (laughs) during disease outbreaks. So I'm sure Solovet is totally overreacting. (laughs) Too soon. (laughs) (laughs) This book is just like... It hits different these days, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Grace orders Gregor to take Boots home, and then Nike takes her away to be quarantined. Everyone else returns to the palace to be checked for bites. Gregor thinks about what his grandma said about the prophecy finding him even if he tries to run away, and he figures that his mom getting bitten is kind of like fate removing her as an obstacle so he and Boots can go on the quest. The narration says... He was so sick of being dragged into the Underland, of being expected to solve its problems, of having the rest of his family suffer for causes that did not even really involve them. And we've talked about this before, but I just love how plainly and explicitly it spells it out here. Gregor does not want to be doing this at all. Yeah. And I like that he mentions that his family isn't involved in the quest when really the only reason he's involved, well, I guess now he has, like, he's invested, he has friends there. But, like, he's really only, he shouldn't be involved also. He just happened to be the warrior and be chosen as, they're like, you, 12-year-old kid, you can do it. Exactly. The Underlanders give Gregor and Boots new clothes and only let Gregor keep his work boots after they've been disinfected. Dulcet the nanny comes to the hospital to take Boots away, and she tells Gregor not to lose heart because he'll find a cure. Gregor almost breaks down about how vital his mom is to their family, and if she dies, it'll be his fault, but he manages to thank Dulcet. That's so rough. I can't imagine, like, being responsible for my mom's life and just being like, somehow I need to find a cure for the disease that will kill her, and we don't, we don't know if there's actually a cure. Like, this prophecy says there's a cure, but even if there's a cure, can we find it? Can I personally find it? Literally. Can I personally... Save this whole Underland and also my mom, who is the only one in our family who can work and is making money and was previously the only, like, healthy, able-bodied adult. And now even that's gone. Yeah, true. Like, I was just thinking when he says that she's, like, holding the family together emotionally, but also literally financially. Like, they are very screwed if his mom dies. Yeah. It's a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Gregor sees Naviv, and when he approaches her and touches her arm, she jumps so bad she ruins the parchment she's writing on. And at first, I was wondering what their parchment is made out of since they don't have trees to make paper, but then I looked it up, and did you know parchment is actually made from sheepskin? Yeah. I I fucking thought it was paper this whole time. No, I saw some big 
I can't remember if this was a Tumblr post or a Reddit post, but that was talking about how the Harry Potter books, they always say they're writing on parchment. And sometimes like J.K. Rowling clearly did not think about the ramifications of needing a fucking goat for every time you do. Because yeah, I also used to think it's fancy paper, but no, it's goat skin. Yeah, I feel like Harry Potter led me to believe that it was just like fancy paper. Right? Yeah. I'm like, it's thick paper. It's the nice paper that looks kind of mottled, but it's skin. Yeah. The, the Torahs, Torahs are made out of parchment. You got to get a whole bunch of it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think I remember when we were learning about like the printing press or whatever, like books were all on vellum, which is like baby cow skin. Oh, I didn't know that. And like all of the Bibles were on vellum and stuff. Dang. Yeah. But we know that the Underlanders have sheep, not only because of this parchment thing, but also at one point, Luxa talks about how she used to have a pet lamb as a kid. So that's fun. That pet lamb could be cameoing right now. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that. All right. <laughs> Naviv recovers from her surprise and leads Gregor to see where his mom is quarantined. Naviv says Grace was told that her kids didn't get bitten, but she was still distraught. So she took some medicine to calm her. The narration says, Gregor thought Noviv might benefit from a little of that medicine herself, but he didn't say so. <laughs> I just love these little asides that he has to himself. He like notices things and like could make a sassy comment and then like chooses not to. It's like the, the narration equivalent of looking into the camera on the office. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> I also, just one thing I liked is that I think in this part, it says that Naviv's, Naviv's rubbing her eye because it's twitching. Her mm -hmm. eyelid's twitching. And I just want to say, relatable, that happens to me when I'm tired and it feels weird. So, but it is real. Yeah. There's authenticity. <laughs> yes. Her exhaustion. Yes. And I, I try to, I always, whenever it happens, I'm like, I want to film it. But then my eye, my eye muscles know that I like want it to happen and it stops. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's like when you're hiccuping and then you, someone tells you hiccup right now and yeah. then it stops. Yeah. Pro tip. Gregor thinks his mom looks small and vulnerable, but he fixes the picture of her in his head because it might be the last time he ever sees her. Jesus Christ. He asks Naviv to tell him everything she knows about the plague, and she invites him to her laboratory. Nike flies them out of the city, and as they pass through the tunnels, Gregor remembers that the cave Ares hides out in is nearby. Mm-hmm. Naviv explains that's why it took Howard and Andromeda so long to find Ares and bring him to the hospital, because he was hiding out in his cave, which is hard to find. Gregor imagines Ares alone and sick in his cave with almost all of his friends either dead or missing. Naviv says, Ares has been greatly prosecuted through no fault of his own, and this is the result. I like this line a lot because it points out how Ares' social status made the plague more dangerous for him. And it's almost like marginalized people are affected disproportionately by public health crises or something. <laughs> nice. Um, I was thinking it could also mean like, like the plague was fated to happen, but also he was patient zero mm -hmm. and he was living out alone in his cave, got the plague and then brought it into the city. But like, maybe if he hadn't been basically exiled he wouldn't have been exposed to the plague and it wouldn't have happened. Yeah, yeah. Because later, actually, mm -hmm. um, I guess we'll talk about it later, but the actual way that Ares did get infected is relevant to his exile also. I, I have notes on that in a second. Oh boy, okay. Gregor is surprised by Naviv's sympathy for Ares, and she explains that after the events of Book 2, Ares was still injured but afraid of being imprisoned again, so Vicus had her treat him in secret. It's kind of hot. <laughs> what part? 
know, he just comes to her to her lavatory at night, and he doesn't wear any clothes. But you know, you can imagine like the romance novel thing where like he takes off his shirt, and she like gently bandages his wound <laughs> while he tries to be stoic. <laughs> just, just a thought. Oh my god. <laughs> literally thoughts that I have never had about this book. <laughs> this is the outsider perspective you bring, mate. <laughs> Glad to be of service. <sighs> Gregor and Naviv arrive at the lab, which is full of equipment like microscopes. Hey, quick quiz. Do you know when the microscope was invented? Dang. No, but I feel like earlier than I would think. I'm going to guess 1907. 1590. What the fuck? Yeah. So depending on how late into the 1600s Sandwich took his cult underground, microscopes could have been like cutting edge technology for them at the time. Oh, that's wild. They were just like, yes, we must take some of these mm -hmm. fine instruments with us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's cool. I feel like even if they didn't bring any with them, though, it wouldn't be that hard to like eventually figure out that yeah. a combination of like lenses and mirrors or whatever like can make things seem bigger you yeah know? yeah i don't know how microscopes work <laughs> yeah that could be magic for all yeah. i know <laughs> who knows what goes on inside of those right? things how do they make it bigger nobody knows <laughs> the narration also mentions there are some bats working with the humans in the lab which i love because it either means that the equipment has been built so that the bats can use it or the humans help out a lot, and that's just very wholesome to me. That the bats can be scientists too. Yeah, I was wondering, do like do the bats have their own like medical traditions and like stuff that they bring in, or did they kind of just learn from the humans? These are good world building questions that we never ever get answers to, mm -hmm. but I am fascinated by. I also was wondering, do they make little lab gloves and goggles for the bats? I hope so. <laughs> I need someone to, like, draw a bat dressed as a scientist now. <laughs> How would the coat work? Oh, I wasn't thinking about a coat. Hmm. I feel like that would be unnecessary. Uh-huh. But the goggles and the gloves, for sure. Or, like, a Breaking Bad-type suit, the yellow suit that's, like, oh, hazmat yes. suit. Yeah, yeah, and a little face mask. Yes. We do actually learn that they have bat face masks in book five. Sick. Yeah. It's for the, um, when Gregor and Ares go to fight in the Firelands, there's like ash and dust and stuff and they have to wear masks when they're fighting. Nice. Yeah. Gregor goes to examine some glass containers along one wall and is startled to see they're full of fleas and blood. He jumps backward a bit and accidentally knocks over one of the containers. It's empty and he manages to catch it, but he easily could have broken it. Naviv tells him nice catch and explains how it'd be hard to replace the container if it broke because it was specifically made for the plague. She says, it took me several months to receive this one when its predecessor was broken. So this is another clue about the origin of the plague, basically near the end of this book, in case you don't remember. Because, like, I don't think actually any of the guests I've had on for this book so far have remembered the twist at the end. Oh, shit. Yeah, no, I was. <laughs> I'm ready. Near the end of this book, we're going to find out that Ares was the one who broke the container that Naviv is talking about. And that's how he got the plague. Wait, I did. I remembered that Naviv made the plague. I forgot that specific thing. Yeah. Oh, shit. Oh, that's good. So, like, he was um, isolated. He mm -hmm. was 
exiled and he was forced to come see her in secret to get his wounds treated from the Bane trip. And then while he was there, he knocked over the plague because she had already been making it at that point. And then Howard and Andromeda got the plague when they brought him into Regalia. So everyone thinks that they all got it from the mites on the Bane trip, but actually it was from the lab. Oh, that's good. I did forget about that. Yeah. But the other thing that I'm interested in about what Naviv says here is like the timeline that she's implying, because she says that the container was broken several months ago. But according to the beginning of this book, it's been, quote, a few months since the end of book two. And those are like vague amounts. But I'm like, how soon after Gregor last left the Underland did the general population learn about the plague? How long after Gregor left did Ares get infected, first of all? And then how long after that did it like get out? Because I think that it got spread from either. So this was another question I have, and I don't remember if they answer this later in the book, but either Ares spread the plague like into the caves where he was living and somehow like the rats and the other warm bloods got it from there. Or by the time Ares gets the plague and is quarantined, Solovet has ordered Naviv to like deploy the plague. And so the rats and everyone else get it on purpose, uh-huh. not on accident. Or like, did Ares getting the plague just kind of like push forward Solovet and Naviv's plan for the plague deployment? Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. I feel like maybe it was that. They're like, oh shit, well, we can't let it get out. Like, if only one person gets it who is near us, they'll know, so we have to deploy it now. Yeah. Also, not exactly related, but it it's amusing to me now that, like, they've already had, Naviva's already had one incident of somebody knocking over the glass container and the plague gets out, and she's just like, well, we're just gonna keep doing it like this, I guess, and letting 12-year-olds, like, go near it. Literally. Yeah, like, it seems very easy to break things in this lab. <laughs> and also, I was thinking about, too, like, like, Gregor puts his torch in a, in a holder, and I'm like, they don't really have any other light source, but it's hilarious that there's just, like, open flames. Open flames, yeah. So, yeah, I'm wondering if... I'm wondering why, basically, why did it take so long for them to call Gregor back down to the Underland if the plague has been out there for a while? That's true. And I don't think, like, my initial thought was that Naviv is lying about when that was knocked over, but it doesn't seem like it, because I feel like if she was going to lie, she wouldn't even tell him that that happened. Right. Yeah, if she had the thought to try and cover anything up, she would have not given him any clues. Naviv tells Gregor about the plague, and we learn the following. It's bloodborne, not airborne. Fleas pass it from warm blood to warm blood through bites, but the fleas themselves don't die from the plague. The regalians have medicine to ease symptoms like fever, but nothing to cure the plague itself. The scientists are working on a cure, but nobody thinks they'll be able to come up with one without the starshade plant from the jungle. The plague affects different creatures at different rates. For example, bats don't get sick as quickly as humans. I wonder if that's just because like they're bigger or like what's going on there? I guess we have no way of knowing that. <laughs> The chapter ends with Gregor asking Naviv how long his mother has to live and her telling him if things go badly, they could lose her in two weeks. That's not good. It's really rough. 
Okay, chapter 11. We jump to Gregor lying on the floor of Sandwich's prophecy room, reading the prophecy of blood with a small mirror. Even though he hasn't memorized, Vicus and Nerissa want him to read it as it was originally written. While the last two prophecies were carved in the middle of the walls, this one is crammed into a corner and written backwards in tiny curling letters. Gregor tries to read it, but ends up looking mostly at his own face in the mirror, which is a detail that will become relevant when deciphering the true meaning of the prophecy at the end of this book. Oh, shit. I can't- re- I'm trying to remember why that happens. It's basically like when they are in the process of figuring out that the starshade can't be the cure because it all gets destroyed in uh-huh. the end, they are figuring out that the plague must have been created by Naviv and uh-huh. that she also will have the cure when they get back. And as they're like deciphering the prophecy, Gregor remembers that when you're reading the prophecy, you're also looking at your own face. Uh-huh. Oh my God. So Sandwich is like writing the prophecy for the Regalians and he's kind of telling them like, no, it's you. Gregor complains that Sandwich made this prophecy difficult to read on purpose and Nerissa thinks it's like that to emphasize how its meaning is difficult to interpret too. Gregor thinks he understands all of it except the repeating stanza. Except here on this page... That stanza reads, remedy and cure entwine, and so they form a single vine. But the prophecy that appears in chapter two of this book doesn't say that. Yeah, I thought that was just a typo, because I was like, that took me a minute. I was like, wait, that's not right. I feel like there's no way that's a typo. Uh Uh-huh. Like, how would she get the prophecy wrong in the book? That's true. So the copy that Nerissa gave Gregor, the version that he memorized, instead says remedy and wrong entwine and so they form a single vine this detail is kind of driving me nuts yeah i mean like is it ever brought up again because that would be so subtle to like yeah no i don't think as far as i can remember none of the characters ever point out this discrepancy which kind of makes me think it might be a typo but like also that seems like such a weird yeah like error to make yeah, I just wonder if, like, whoever, like, she didn't type this part up, but somebody was typing it up, and they were like, remedy, and then they forgot the next thing, like, cure. They're just like, they, they were, wouldn't just look back and copy and paste? I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Or copying from, like, a different section of the, like, maybe she was originally going to write it like that, and then she changed it, and it, like, oh, and that like, stayed in the... That's so weird, though. Like, you'd yeah. think that an editor would catch that. Yeah. But, like, I've read this book upwards of a dozen times, and this is the first time that I've noticed this. Oh, uh-huh. Like, like, I've literally, I mean, I listen to the audiobooks. Maybe I should have listened to the audiobook. Yeah, I was going to say, what's it say in the audiobook? I, I will go back and check, and I'll, Ooh, I'll put it, I'll edit excellent. it in a little bit here if it's relevant. Excellent. Hey everyone, it's Editing Una. I just went back and listened to the audiobook and it says the same thing that appears in my version of the paperback. It says Remedy and Wrong in chapter 2 and it says Remedy and Cure in chapter 11. So what the fuck, basically. I even went to the Underland Chronicles like wiki page for this prophecy and it doesn't mention this detail. So I don't know if that means that like everyone has missed this or it's seriously a typo because i've never like in all my time in the gregor fandom i don't think i've seen anyone mention this 
And I think that my copy of the paperback is like one of the earlier printings of it. So like if it was an error, maybe it wasn't corrected yet. But you'd think that the paperback would get corrected. Like the hardcover comes out first and then errors get corrected in the paperback, right? Yeah, that seems right. And yeah, the only only results that come up when I search this are like online copies of the book, which apparently also have this typo. Okay, I'm choosing to move forward as if this is purposeful. Okay, let's do it. So if this is, if we're operating under the assumption that this is not an error, I have so many fucking questions. Okay. Like, was it that Gregor actually memorized the prophecy wrong and in chapter two of this book he's being an unreliable narrator and he's like remembering the prophecy and that's the version that we're reading that he is actually memorizing it wrong but that doesn't seem likely to me because he would have had to like make up that word and also like he spent so much time reading and rereading the prophecy like i don't think that he was the one who made this like swap from cure to wrong yeah i feel like either narissa copied it down wrong or it's like different in one verse of the original prophecy and i'm wondering what the motive for that would be yeah so i'm pretty sure that it was narissa okay who changed cure to wrong and i'm wondering like did she do it on purpose and if so why or did she swap the words like subconsciously were her own prophetic powers causing interference when she was copying down the prophecy i like that theory was she conscious of the fact that she was doing this and like let it happen and she was like oh i'm just gonna give gregor my remix of the prophecy (laughs) this is my fan fiction of sandwiches prophecy i have no idea what that could mean i mean if it's if it was if we say that originally it was supposed to remedy and cure then it could be like sandwich says you will find the overlanders will find the cure because they're the best but norris's prophecy own prophetic powers are saying no the underlanders are also the ones who made the plague in the first place yeah Another thing that makes me think that it might be an error is that remedy and wrong makes so much more sense as what would be in the prophecy. Because remedy and cure are the same. Yeah. They have the same meaning. Yeah. So like remedy and cure being entwined is like not as like that's not the two things being entwined is not as interesting as remedy and wrong being entwined and also there's like the phonetic similarity of remedy and wrong like they both start with the like r oh nice so that is more poetic also yeah i feel like i feel like it was just like somebody was like i can't remember if it's remedy or cure and then i'm like oh it's remedy and then they just kept typing and accidentally cure was still in their brain yeah but like someone should have caught that yeah i feel like yeah I need everyone who's listening to this right now to go look at their copy of Curse of the Warmbloods and tell me if it says cure or wrong in this chapter. Call to arms. If you don't have a copy, go to the library. (laughs) Yeah. Support your local library and tell us what the fuck this means. (laughs) Yeah, I I was like going crazy last night taking my notes for this. Like, I need answers. <laughs> I'm like Charlie Day. I was in I, the Pepe <laughs> Sylvia meme. <laughs> I got boxes full of Gregor. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so Vicus asks Gregor what he thinks the stanza means. 
And he says it sounds like it's telling them they're all wrong about their interpretation of everything going on. Gregor asks why they're even bothering to do anything then if they'll end up being wrong in the end, and Vicus points out that the alternative is to do nothing, and the prophecy says they do have to go on a journey. Gregor asks if Vicus is coming with on the quest, and he says no, but Solovet and Ripred are, and that eases Gregor's anxiety a bit. I love that Gregor's at the point where he's like, oh good, Rip Red's coming. Yeah, because <laughs> like he acknowledges like he doesn't even like Solovet, but she's a good fighter. Like, can you imagine how unhinged a quest with Solovet and Rip Red would be? Because <laughs> she doesn't end up staying on this quest. Oh, I forget, because they meet Hamnet. Yeah, right? Hamnet okay. makes her leave. But like, we also didn't get a ton of Solovet and Rip Red interaction in the first book, because Solovet and Vicus left after Rip Red got there to lead the kiddos to Gregor's dad. But, like, that would be so wild to just be traveling with Solovet and Rip Red. Can you imagine the sass? Oh my god, they would just be constantly trying to outdo each other. Yeah. Or I feel like sometimes they would sync up, like Gregor would say something dumb and they would both be like, Gregor, at the same time. <laughs> An underlander shows up to let them know the rats and roaches are back, so it's time to continue the meeting. Gregor offers Nerissa the handheld mirror back, but she tells him to keep it in case he needs it again. The three of them go to a room that Gregor recognizes as the place where he and Ares made their vows to be bonded in book one, except now it's full of rats and roaches along with the humans and bats. Vicus and Nerissa go to join the humans in the bleachers, but Gregor feels like he did the day both his friends were out sick, and he didn't know where to eat lunch in the cafeteria without them. He figures that because the rats definitely won't have him, and the Regalian Council is still thinking about executing him for treason, and the bats were mean to Ares, he'll be most comfortable with the roaches. Which I kind of love, mm -hmm. that he's like, y'all are the only ones I respect here. <laughs> Vicus starts the meeting and lists the proposed members of the quest, which are Gregor, Boots, Nike, Solovet, Ajax, Ripred, Mange, Lapblood, and Temp. Mange complains about having to bring along Temp, and Lapblood makes a joke about eating him if necessary. Very rude. Very rude. But I find it interesting that even the Regalians and Bats laugh at this. Yeah. Like, I get that all of the species make fun of the roaches, but I feel like if a rat made that joke, like, doesn't the hate that the humans and the bats have for the rats outweigh their, like, desire to make fun of the roaches? That's so true. Maybe it's a little, like, warm, like, subconscious, unconscious warm blood solidarity right now. They're like, oh. Temp doesn't have any freaking skin in the game. Those freaking roaches never have any problems, and they suck. <laughs> that could be it. I feel like if I was in a room, though, with someone that I hated and someone that I was kind of like annoyed with or whatever, if the person that I hated made a joke about the person that I was annoyed with, I wouldn't laugh. Yeah, that's true. I'd be like temporarily not annoyed with that person. I'd be yeah. Like, yeah, that's, that's cold. They're so rude to the roaches for like, in what ways have the roaches even proven to like be useless or inferior? Like, it seems like they are nothing but capable and helpful. I think that the humans, bats, and rats really value the ability to fight. Okay, that's true. And like the cockroaches don't fight. They probably like could try their best. You <laughs> yeah. know they would. You would just you put you flip them over onto their back and it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like they don't have claws or teeth or they can't hold a sword, you know? 
they're not of value in a military setting, which is definitely what the Underland is. Yeah, that's true. According to the humans and rats and bats. Yeah. Anyway, Gregor stares at Lapblood and says, maybe they'll all eat her instead. And I just want to mention here that the way that the audiobook narrator says this line is so deadpan and creepy. It's really great. Gregor locked eyes with the rat. Or maybe we'll eat you. I've never had rat, but with the right sauce, who knows? Rip Red is the only one who laughs at that, delighted to know that at least the trip won't be boring. Laplet argues that they still haven't been convinced to join the quest. She comes off as kind of mean here, but I think she's actually doing a really great job of, like, advocating for her species. Because she knows damn well that the humans, like, aren't gonna help the rats, even if the rats help to find the cure. That's true, yeah. She has no reason to trust the humans. I don't know. This is some good, like, negotiation. This is some good, like, thinking ahead of, like, well, even if we help, like, there's nothing to say that the humans will stick to their word because they haven't in the past. Yeah, and it's interesting that Rip Red isn't the one to bring this up. I think that... I really love Lapblood, first mm-hmm. of all. Mm-hmm. That won't be the f- last time you hear that from me during this book. <laughs> but I think that she is kind of a, a leader in her own right in that she is like very much thinking about the rats. Like Rip Red is more of like a peacemaker. He's more of like a diplomat. That's true, which is a hilarious way to describe him. I know, right? But he's like kind of a go-between for the species. But Lapblood is way more like only here for what's best for the rats not in like a cruel way towards the humans necessarily but like she doesn't really give a shit about overall peace i don't think until later i mean she eventually joins the resistance but i don't think at this point she's like on board with rip red's whole thing of like no no more wars you know like i think Lapblood is just living in the moment here and being like the humans are fucking us over and they won't stop unless we make them. Yeah, that's so true. And like, she doesn't have to, she's not like beholden to niceties in the way that Rip Red is sort of. Like she can just be like, I'm not going on your fucking quest yeah. unless I get what I want. Right. I think that Lapblood has like nothing to lose at this point. Except Mange. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Too soon. You're right. But like- I mean, she has, later we learn that she has pups and they have the plague back home and she's kind of like on this quest to, for them. But I'm not sure that she has a lot of hope about finding a cure. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm going to have to keep thinking about Lapblood as we go forward because we don't know her that well yet. Mm-hmm. And I haven't really given her like a ton of thought reading this before, but she's a really interesting character. And her relationship with Gregor is really interesting too. Yeah, I feel like in the book, I didn't really pay attention to her until after Mange died. Because before that, it was just like, oh, mean rat. Well, that's how it is. Right, exactly. Yeah, like the two of them are kind of a team and they're pretty antagonistic. And then her character takes like a drastic turn when Mange dies. But I, I don't know, I just really liked this part where she's like making Solovet or she's saying, like, we haven't even decided on this. Like, you all are talking about going on this quest and, like, you're assuming that we've agreed and we haven't yet. Like, we still have things to decide. We still have things that we need from you. We need promises. Yeah. 
I just, I don't know. She's giving me like union rep vibes or <laughs> you're, something. You're so right. <laughs> She's like, no, I'm here to fucking like fight for what's ours. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I just, uh, I love Lapland. That's my, that's what I am saying here. That, that's your thesis. <laughs> that's my thesis statement is Lapland is awesome. <laughs> Vicus says the humans are willing to strike a deal with the rats to free up some fishing grounds, but Mange and Lapland won't accept unless they throw in the yellow flea powder too. When the humans hesitate to agree, Gregor stands up and shouts, Send them the powder. Jeez, have you seen Ares? Have you seen what the plague does? No matter how much you hate the rats, do you really want them to die like that? Solovet tells Gregor he has a, quote, forgiving heart, but Gregor doesn't think so. He hasn't forgiven the rats for what they did to his dad and his friends, but he thinks the plague is something he wouldn't wish on his worst enemies. The chapter concludes with Gregor saying, No, I don't. But I've got a mom and a bond with the plague. Your hospital is starting to fill up. We need the rats to find the cure. So what's it going to be, Solovet? Nice. It's so badass. This is such a Greg like this is such a Gregor thing to do. To just be like, fuck all of you. Like, shut up and just work together for once. Like, this is his outsider perspective coming in again. Like he has not grown up on the propaganda of like the rats are evil and bad and like yes he's lost a lot to the rats but he hasn't been raised in this society and like indoctrinated the same way so he's still got this outsider perspective of being able to come in and be like you're both being ridiculous i i love i really like your point about the propaganda like he's also he's like i have also had atrocities committed against me by the rats but just because he like hasn't been steeped in all the shit that the regalians feed themselves, he can actually make a good and informed decision. Yeah. And it's like, so no, the rats are not evil. You guys just will not shut up about them being evil. Yeah. This I think is also very like Suzanne Collins-y. Like, I'm thinking about how Solovet is telling Gregor that he has a forgiving heart, but like he doesn't think so. And I think that he's right. Like he's not forgiving and forgetting what the rats have done but he he's able to have the perspective of like even though the rats have harmed me i don't want this harm to come to them like he has seen aries and is scared for his mom and he is able to have the perspective of like that's so bad no one should have to suffer that and it would be unfair even though i've experienced hardship because of the rats like they don't deserve to feel this hardship because i'm gonna like refuse to help them it's not about forgiveness is what i'm saying like some some books are like about forgiveness in that they're like you should just like forgive people no matter what they do and like you can only find peace through forgiveness right and you can only like reconcile differences through forgiveness but i don't think that ultimately that's what suzanne collins is saying i think that this is more like gregor is acknowledging the bad things that have happened and he's not forgiving that but he has enough of a nuanced perspective to also be like but i can help the rats this once or like this is for the greater good of all of us to work together yeah or it's more like it's just justice instead of forgiveness he's like the rats might have done this but it's just still not right to like deprive them because i think a theme of this book is like 
the humans and the rats hate each other because they have both done terrible things to each other. Like, like Luxa lost her parents to rats. Rip Red lost his family to humans. But this whole series ends with Rip Red and Luxa bonding. And I don't think it's about forgiveness for them. It's more like we can acknowledge that that was the past, but now we're working towards a future. And I like that because I feel like forgiveness is such an internal thing. It's like, well, if you forgive somebody, it's like, well, great. Now I'm sure you feel better. And that does help for some people. But if you actually want to, like you said, work toward a better future, you have to actually like actively do something and you don't need to forgive them to actually do something. Yeah. There's like an emotional catharsis with forgiveness, but that is ultimately like not the same as acting on what is good for everyone. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I just, I really like the idea of Solovet looking at Gregor and perceiving him as being forgiving. And he's like, no, that's not what it's about. That's true. She's like, you're very, you're young, you're naive, you don't really understand. And he's like, no, I do. Yeah. Or they're looking at him and being like, oh, you have a very pure heart. Like, yeah. You have a very, like, you're built different. <laughs> like, you have the ability to look past what the rats have done to you. And he's like, yeah. no, I'm not looking past it. Like, I'm looking at that. And I'm also looking at the plague and knowing that we have to deal with this. That's so true. They're just like, well, Gregor, we're just not as good as you. Yeah, because like, he's not asking Solovet to forgive the rats. He's just asking her to send this fucking like flea powder. And that's such a emotional thing for the Regalians to like help rats. I think in the next chapter that when they continue the plague meeting, it mentions that like some of the regalians are like crying over having to send the flea powder to the rats. And it's such a deeply like emotional thing for them because they are so entrenched in this conflict and it's it runs so deep for them. And that makes it really hard to like separate the like emotions from what needs to be done. Anyway, yeah. I just, I really like this line. I love this line of like, Solovet being like, you have a forgiving heart. And he's like, no, the fuck I don't. <laughs> like, I'm not asking you to forgive everything. I just need you to give the rats this thing so we can go find the cure. Like, you don't need to fix all of your problems with the rats here and now. You just need to do this one fucking thing. And Gregor, it's so practical for him, but the Regalians have so much baggage attached to that. They're incapable. They're like, well, if we give the rats this, then we're going to have to do this. And we're going to have to, where does it end? Like, it's a slippery slope. And he's like, can we just move on? It's like, for the Regalians, it's like, if you give a mouse a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> if you give a rat some flea powder. Yeah, it's like, well, if we're willing to compromise with them on this, then they can just ask for anything and they're just going to take more and more. And they're so concerned about that kind of thing. And Gregor is just like, no, focus on here and now. Your hospital is filling up in very real terms. Like my mom is going to die and I don't care about anything else right now. Like I'm willing to set stuff aside, not forget about it, just like acknowledge it and also acknowledge that something else needs to be done. Dialectic behavioral therapy when you hold two com conflicting ideas together. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. It's like we can acknowledge like that someone has like done wrong to us and also acknowledge like on a different scale that 
we can't always be operating in terms of, I don't know, like complete forgiveness, complete absolution. Yeah. We'll see how much of that rambling makes it into the final cut. But (laughs) I guess, did you have any other thoughts about these chapters? I mean, they were kind of short, but a lot was going on. Yeah, I think I had one thought. I was just interested in how like Naveed talks about, she mentions that like they're working on the cure, even though they don't think it'll work. And she also mentions that like, she's one of the only people who, one of the only regalians who isn't angry at Aries. And I think it's really interesting that like, this whole team of scientists is like, it's kind of like a science versus religion thing that's never directly brought up because Ooh. nobody's like, you, nobody's telling them not to do it. But at the same time, nobody believes that the scientists are actually going to cure the plague, but she's doing it anyway, which seems to indicate that she like kind of disagrees with at least some fundamental part of regaling society. And maybe that's why she's more predisposed towards like forgiving Aries. Cause she's like, yeah, this whole, this bond thing is kind of fucked up that it's like this. There should be extenuating circumstances. I think that also because Naviv knows that the plague wasn't like an act of divine fate. True. Like she knows that like she created the plague and she knows that she can find a cure for it without them going on this quest and she just has to like lie about all of this and i think that because she knows how fucked up that is that she's also willing to acknowledge that what has been done to aries is fucked up nice i did forget that she was supposed to on purpose release the plague at some point and then she gets executed at the end right she does wicked i mean bad but like pretty metal yeah (laughs) this book gets so fucking real like this is what i'm talking about this is why i think it's everyone's favorite is that this book takes it a step up in like intensity it recontextualizes how we thought about the underland it introduces a lot of themes that are going to carry us through the end of the series yeah, this book makes me fucking yeah. deranged. I'm, I'm so normal about this book. You just trip and your and your five thousand copies of Curse of the Warm Bloods fall out of your pockets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what are these? No, this is nothing. I don't. <laughs> I don't really have anything else. You can probably crop this out later, but I just in anticipation of possibly discussing plagues, I did re-listen to the um. It's like a, a Weird Al version, but not made by Weird Al, of Hollaback Girl by Gwen Stefani, but it's about the Black Plague. Fucking what? <laughs> I, they showed it to us in like sixth grade history class, and I still remember a good amount of the lyrics. That sounds like some sixth grade history class Yeah, shit. yeah. It's, it's just the, the YouTube channel is just called History Teachers, one word. That's fucking good. Yeah. I like re-listened to it a couple times because it has so much information about the Black Plague that I was like, just in case, just uh-huh. in case. And yeah, the Black Plague was caused by, in fact, fleas on rats. Nice. And it also um, was used in biological warfare, a very early form of it where, okay, first of all, all of this is from the song. If it's wrong, it's because of the song and I'm sorry, <laughs> um, but the Mongols would, they already had corpses with the plague in it i don't know why i'm trying to rephrase this oh, so much yeah, yeah yeah i know about this they would like catapult corpses into like over walls and shit right yeah yeah so it's like it's interesting to 
to both both like read okay hang on now i can bring in my bible knowledge like in the bible they talk about like preventing leprosy and stuff and they don't know what it's caused by so they'll be like you should look at this and see if this guy has like a mark of this kind on him that's a problem that's leprosy but then they don't really know how diseases work so they'll be like if this piece of cloth has a mark on it hold it aside for seven days and see if it gets clean if this house is sick and it's interesting to go from that and from like this very primitive biological warfare it's like yeah we know these corpses are fucked up and then the first of all that sandwich's prophecy is already somehow medically advanced enough to know that it's a bloodborne plague which did they even know about that shit back then would they be like i have no idea i don't think they did i feel like people weren't even like washing their hands until relatively recently oh god yeah it's interesting that the prophecy is like they kind of know so much they're using the plague in such a like purposeful way Mm -hmm. and that they know how it passes and that in contrast to how that plague actually like happened and was used in real life when like a similar thing with a similar method of transmission happened Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. like wow wicked (laughs) (laughs) i don't have anything else um no yeah that's good i probably have more thoughts but i also think that they would be better suited to go in like later chapters like i'm thinking way ahead to like solivet thoughts and stuff so i'll just save them for another episode but thanks so much for joining me nathan yeah thanks for having me this is a very good time next week's episode will cover chapters 12 and 13 don't forget to follow us on tumblr instagram and wherever you're listening you can find links to all our social media and merch at returntoregalia.card.co. That is C-A-R-R-D dot C-O. Thank you for listening, and until next time, fly you high. Fly you high. <laughs>